Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Justin Tinsley, the author of It Was All a Dream Biggie and the World That Made Him. This is his first book. He's a senior reporter with Anscape. Mr. Tinsley, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And uh, we were speaking a little bit beforehand, your, your words about the book. Uh, I harbored them greatly. I harbored them deeply. So thank you so much for having me here. I'm well, look, it, really looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, it's a heck of a book, and we're going to get into it in a second. Before we start, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Maybe my most distinct memory of Notorious B.I.G., or at least of the impact his music had, is from five years after he died. I was at a college party in Ithaca, New York. It was dark. We were outside. It was well before winter came, obviously, because the winters there are no joke. Uh, I'm not sure what song was on before that one, but all of a sudden, there it was. The first words of Juicy. It was all a dream blasted through the speakers way too loud. And we all stopped to rap uh, to rap along with it. I remember thinking that I forgot how great this song is. And I feel cool listening to it, especially at a college party. Right. So, uh, Justin, first, let's have you tell the story of how that song was made. How was Juicy made and why it was tailor made to have an impact on college students who were just starting to figure out who they were and what they might become one day. I mean, well, Juicy is, it was named by the BBC a couple of years ago, I believe is the quote unquote quintessential hip hop record of all time. And it's the ultimate rags to riches. It's the ultimate socioeconomic advancement anthem. And the funny thing about it is he didn't originally want to record the song. Uh, <laughs> So obviously his Biggie's debut album was called Ready to Die and it came out in September 1994. But the original title for the album was going to be called Teflon Don. It was it was an homage to John Gotti, who is, of course, one of the legendary crime bosses in New York City. But it was it was Sean Puffy Combs who basically told Big, like, no, we got to have something that's more. It's not like New York specific. It has to be something that a lot of people can like, you know, readily recognize. So for whatever reason, the, the title Ready to Die stuck. <laughs> Teflon Don didn't, but Ready to Die did. And so Puffy and Biggie had this, uh, I guess you could say, vocal, verbal agreement throughout the recording process. Biggie wanted to record the hardest songs imaginable. So when you hear songs like Machine Gun Funk, when you hear songs like Things Done Change, and even the title track Ready to Die, those are all Biggie getting his way. Puffy was like, look, you record that, but you got to give me at least two or three songs for the radio, which is why you hear songs like Big Papa and then, of course, Juicy. So the idea originally began, I believe, in like 1993. Puffy was still working at Uptown Records with Andre Harrell and James Mtume came into the office and Puffy wanted, you know, who recently passed, I believe, last year or even earlier this year, late, late last year. And he had the song Juicy Fruit. And Puffy wanted to sample that for a song that he was working on his new artist, uh, Notorious B.I.G. And one thing led to another. He got clearance for the sample. He took it to Biggie and Biggie was like, what the what the hell am I supposed to do with this? And Puffy, being the, the master motivator that he is, told him, like, here's the vision I have for the song. Tell us basically tell us your story over this beat. And Mr. C was in Biggie's ear. He was like, look. Trust Puffy on this. He's not going <laughs> to lead you wrong. And one thing led to another. He got in the booth and said it was all a dream. He used to read Word Up magazine and literally the rest is history. And the, yeah, the greatest song of, of all time is written and made. Um, to this day, I hear it and I love it. Um, so Notorious B.I.G. was born May 21st, 1972 as Christopher Wallace, by the way. And you say that those are two different people. Um, right. That put him at 22 when that song came out in 1994. It's hard to even say this out loud. He was killed March 9th, 1997 at just 24 years old in that awful drive-by shooting in L.A. Yeah. And you say that your book is about the dash in between those two dates. That if you look at his tombstone, there's a date 
on one side, a date on the other side, born and dead. And you say that the story of his life um, is told in that dash and that all of our lives, the story is told in that dash. So when and how did you realize that the stories of Biggie's dash had to be told in a book? You know, I, it, it's great that, that you asked me that because I, I think it is such an important question. It may be the most important question as it relates to, you know, it was all a dream, Biggie in the world that made him. I, for so long, obviously, I'm I'm a child of hip hop as well. I grew up I grew up listening to it. I grew up hiding cassette tapes from my mom because I didn't want her to know I was listening to quote unquote explicit music. And so, of course, Biggie is just one of those guys who eventually became like a folk hero. Like he, he was larger than life, but I felt so often. And I think sometimes it's done maliciously. Sometimes it, I think it's not done maliciously. But I think so much of his life has been. Uh, remembered by such high points and a lot of it dealt with negativity whether it be obviously the way that he passed and you know his falling out with his former friend Tupac Shakur and just you know, I those are important parts of the story but I knew it wasn't the entire story and so when I was approached to to write this book I wanted it I wanted to try and humanize him as much as possible because over the last quarter century, he's he's been made to be like this superhero type figure. And he is a superhero in terms of hip hop. But he was also a 24 year old young man who was still trying to figure out life, who was still making a lot of mistakes to go along with these great accomplishments he was creating. He was still trying to be a better son. He was still trying to be a better father. Uh, he was still trying to be a better partner. And, you know, he was still 24 years old. He was lit. He, he had way more stuff to figure out about life than he actually figured out. And I wanted to, to manifest that in the book. And I knew to manifest it, I had to peel back the layers on the onion and show that, yes, here's Biggie Smalls. Here's the guy that we grew up loving. But here's here's the world that made him. And here's some of the things that forced him to make the decisions that he made, even if he didn't recognize it at the time. So how did you peel back those layers? What were your sources for the book? I, I interview a lot of historians who write about more, um, I guess you could say, I hate the word traditional, but history about yeah. presidents and about yeah. events in time. And so there are archives and there are um, other ways that are kind of sort of in the system of just people being able to go, okay, I need papers on, let's say, George Washington. I know where to go for, sure. for that. Um, how many people, I, I assume you interviewed lots of people for this book. So how did you interview people? How many did you interview? And where did you collect all of Biggie's quotes from? Um, is there an archive of papers or of diaries that Biggie left behind? That man. So in terms of, I, I'll start with Biggie himself. Obviously, I knew everything that I got from him in terms of actual quotes from Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls. Of course, they're going to be archived. And so I'm one of those type of guys. I love research. I love going on, whether it be a YouTube rabbit hole. I love going into like archives of newspapers, whether it be the New York Times or Boston Globe, LA Times. Or if I can go back further enough, I go back to like black newspapers of the day to, and to give me sources and quotes on different topics that I'm interested in. So I knew with Biggie, it was going to take a lot of going down a bunch of different rabbit holes. So if you go back to my original Google Doc, my original Google Doc is like 1,200 pages. And it's just links and like copy and pasting paragraphs from, from this article with the link. Like, all right, this quote talks about this specific point of his life. So when I get here, I want to reference this. And that's fun to me. It's like putting the pieces of a puzzle together. So with Biggie, it was all archival stuff. In terms of, I interviewed maybe around like 55, 60 people for the book. Uh, the, the bulk of which actually made the book, uh, some of which were actually just background. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I would venture to say 50, 55 to 60. The first person I interviewed for the book was DJ Mr. C. And I believe I interviewed him around late March 2020. And so, you know, you know how it is when you interview people, like once you finish an interview, it's like, OK, who would you recommend I reach out to next? Mm -hmm. And so like it was just one person led to another, led to another, led to another. Sometimes, you know, it would lead to a dead end, but they would give me three or four names. So if two led to a dead end, that means two I actually got and they would point me to two or three more. So that that's how it was. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't get like his mother or faith. Or, you know, people like that super close to him because uh, I reached out to the estate and I told them what I was working on. And I wanted to let them know that, like, this is not going to be 
a hit piece or anything salacious is, is more so a reflection of his life, his times, his legacy. And, you know, I'm a reporter. I'm not out to like throw dirt on anybody's name when dirt doesn't need to be thrown on it. And uh, thankfully, over the years, even even before I started working on this book, uh, I established a good relationship with uh, CJ Wallace. That was a uh, big yeah, at and the end big of the book, and you had a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So he helped me out a lot as well. And uh, I, it, it was great because I think just speaking to like a bunch of different people who aren't normally interviewed about Biggie for this book, it, it, it painted him in a different light that, that hadn't really been painted in, you know, the years of whodunit books and the years of the documentaries and miniseries, yeah. a lot of which I'm big fans of for the record. And so I, I was just very appreciative of, of those type sources. Yeah, uh, you mentioned her. She's a frequent guest star in many of his songs. I you, you feel like you almost know her, given how often Biggie mentioned her in his songs. The story of Valletta Wallace is a fascinating one on its own. A book could be done on her life. Oh, um, sure. Where did she get her sense of self-worth from, which permeates the story of Biggie? She, she was a very, like like her son, she knew what she wanted out of life. She knew at a very young age, growing up in Jamaica, that she knew the world was just bigger than Trelawney Parish, where she grew up in Jamaica, which is also where uh, Usain Bolt is from, just to get, you know, provide that type of context. Um, she had a very, she had a big family, but she was, if you read her memoir that she came out with, and I believe 2005 or 2006, she talks about her childhood a lot. And she talks about growing up in this big family, but also feeling like alone in a lot of cases. She was very close with her parents. She was extremely close with her dad and just going to work with her father growing up and just sitting in the fields while he worked and just worked on different projects uh, that allowed her to like really just daydream about a life bigger than what it was, uh, bigger than where she came from. And once she got to be a teenager uh, around 17 or 18, she was working at a travel agency and at the travel agency, it would always be brochures of America or different countries. And America was one of them. And this is America in the 60s. So if you know anything about American history, you know, the 1960s, it was completely different than what they were putting on. That what they were putting on the pictures. Right. That's <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So interesting. Barack Obama's yeah. dad was inspired to come to the United States in much the same way. Yeah, those, those, those were some provocative brochures. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> come to the so, promised land. Come to the promised land, land of milk and honey. And that's what she wanted. And she eventually uh, got the opportunity to come to New York uh, around the late 60s, I believe, like 1969. And soon as she landed at JFK in New York and she got that first taxi out of the airport, I think she realized like, damn, this is not the brochure. <laughs> and she was a very, uh, she was a well well-rounded woman in terms of she she knew what was going on in the world so when she got there she understood the climate of the 60s this is post you know dr king assassination post malcolm x post uh the black power movement is really starting to take take shape in america at the time and we're still at, we're still in the vietnam war and so all of these things are helping shape her point of reference for america and in and in turn is helping shape the, the point of reference and the world that her unborn son is going to come into. So when I talk a lot about like you read the book, obviously, and it's it's a traditional biography of Christopher Wallace from life to death and legacy. But it's also a socioeconomic, socio, sociocultural and sociopolitical examination of the world around him and Valletta uh, by proxy as well. Yeah. And, and we are going to get to that because I love that part of the book. But um, Biggie's dad, um, I can't help but hear. Um, I mean, I guess I'm not the only person who hears some resentment in some of Biggie's lyrics for him, mostly when it comes to how he sort of had to protect his mother and be the one to give her things that she didn't have before he got famous. Uh, just real quick, who who was he? And, um, you know, how did Biggie view him based on what we see in his music? So his father, uh, Biggie excuse me, Christopher Wallace did right, not right, really right. have any legitimate memories of his father. And in a, in a sense, I can kind of relate to that. I grew up in a similar type of situation. My parents divorced when I was a year and a half, two years old, and I ended up moving to Virginia with my mom. So while my parents were married at the time that I was born, I don't have any memories of them. So with Biggie's, with Christopher Wallace's dad, 
uh, he was much like his mother. He was Jamaican expat. He had come from Jamaica and he, he was, uh, he was older than his mother. So it was one of those older man, younger woman relationships. And he was taking her all around New York, showing her different parts of life that Valletta really wasn't accustomed to in terms of like going to restaurants, going to movies, uh, believe yeah, the first movie she ever saw in theaters was Shaft. And so he was really taking her around New York and showing her these things. And slowly but surely she started to catch feelings for him. And she found out she was pregnant uh, one day. And that's when the relationship really began to dissolve from the moment that he found out that she was pregnant because Valletta would, Valletta would later come to know that this guy was married. He had another family. This wasn't, this was like pre-internet. So you could have another family across town and you would never know for a long time. And once she found that out, Valletta felt deeply offended. She felt deeply played. And she was like, I don't need you for anything. Just take care of your son. And for maybe like the first six, seven months of his life, he was there to give money, maybe bring some milk every now and then. But by two at the latest, he was out of Christopher's life for, for good. And it was just Valletta and Christopher growing up his entire life. So when you hear him talk about his father in later interviews, once he's you know famous at this point, uh, there is a deep sense of resentment there. He didn't want to know who he was. He just knew that like, if you can't treat my mother right, if you can't treat her with the respect that she deserves, then I don't want to know you because that's the woman who looked out for me. That's the woman who protected me. And that's the woman who gave me everything that I needed. So like, if you can't protect her, if you can't do your job, then I'm going to protect her. And we don't, her nor myself need you. And, and that's where that feeling of resentment and that's where that feeling of, I got to be there for her at all times, even when I'm pissing her off, which he did a lot in his later years. Uh, that's where that's where that relationship and that's where that resentment was rooted in. So speaking of Biggie's world, um, some of it came, of course, from rap music. And I love the fact that every time I read about rap music or hear about where it was invented, I see Sedgwick Avenue because I was born and raised on set. Well, I wasn't born on Sedgwick Avenue, but I was raised on Sedgwick Avenue, 3845 Sedgwick okay. Avenue, as opposed to, I think, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue, which some, mm -hmm. I think that's what it was, which is the building that rap was invented in. So, uh, I mean, I don't want to have you gloss over, you know, hundreds of years of music here, but uh, basically how was rap music invented? This was uh, August 1973, like you said, 1520 Cedric Avenue in the Bronx. It was a back to school party and uh, DJ Cool Herc had uh, he was he was on the, the ones and twos and he was just mixing and mastering uh, at, a, at a back to school party. And I believe it was for his younger sister. I, I have to go back through my notes again. But, yeah, he was DJing that. And in the middle of his sets, he would start breaking down and like mixing different records together, like on the fly, like freestyling. And while this had been, you know, people had seen it done before and like the roots of it had been planted, you know, in years prior, even as far back to like 1967, 1968, August 11th, 1973 is seen as the birth of hip hop because it was kind of done on this at that point in time, it was the biggest stage that anybody had ever seen, 1520 Cedric. And it became so popular that other people wanted to mimic that and bring that to their neighborhoods, to their blocks. But the Bronx, you know, 1520, that is seen as the, the Big Bang. <laughs> you know, if, if, the, if the world that we're in right now is this hip hop universe, that's where the Big Bang happened right then and right there. I'll tell you, I'm sure I've passed. I know I've passed it many times, but the next time I'm home, I'm going to have uh, my dad drive me down to uh, 1520 Cedric to. to just look at the building. Cause I looked at Google earth and I was like, I think I've seen the building, but I'm going to make sure I go and notice it this time. What was the state of rap music as Biggie was bursting on the scene? Um, we're very used to right now, lots of crossover appeal and, you know, people, you know, uh, of every stripe, listen to rap music. What was it like in the mid eighties, you know, right as Biggie was coming of age, where could you listen to it and how could you find it and how many people were listening to it then? And what kinds of people? So when we go back to the late eighties, rap is still in a, it's not, I guess you say in its infancy, you know, it's still, it's, it's, it's bigger than what it was when, you know, Rapper's Delight came out in like 1979, 1980. So by 1988, that's kind of seen as uh, one, that's the year that roughly a lot of people agree that like 
Christopher Wallace really went knee deep into hustling. That's when he was really out on the corner every day. But 1988 is also seen as one of the uh, symbolic years in rap. You have uh, NWA's Straight Outta Compton comes out that year. Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to, to come out that year. And then there's just so much other music just bubbling around New York. EPMD, obviously Rakim and Eric B's Paid in Full, I believe, came out the year earlier. So uh, New York is the epicenter of hip hop. There, there's this, you know, the West Coast is really starting to bubble up thanks to Easy E and uh, NWA and Ice Cube and Dre and all those guys. But New York is still seen as the 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 you know where everybody wants to be accepted, where everybody wants to have this seal of approval. And Biggie is selling drugs at this point. Like he, that's his full time uh, occupation. He's and he's, I mean, that. he's really selling drugs. I mean, sometimes yeah, no, you hear rappers and you think to yourself, like, oh, you know, maybe you're. Uh, I'll believe half of what you say if you, you know, um, yeah. kind of thing. But Biggie was really doing that. I mean, he was. I mean, reading your book, I yeah. was like, boy, he was really into this thing. This is not an exaggeration. No, no. He, I mean, he wasn't like. Uh, you know, a Tony Montana or anything, but he was definitely, <laughs> but he was like, doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he yeah. was like, if you were yeah. in Brooklyn, Clinton Hill, Bed-Stuy, Bedford and Quincy around those areas uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, you would see Christopher, you would, the biggest guy on the block would be Christopher <laughs> Wallace. He would be on the corner and, you know, just from people who I spoke to on and off the record, they was like, he was as affable you know, a corner boy as you could possibly be. Like he knew everybody in the neighborhood by name. He even knew what his customers like. He would go to the bodegas and everybody would just love, love to talk to him. So like people love to be around him, even when, you know, he was quote unquote doing dirt. So, but people who knew him knew that Chris loved to rap. He just didn't know how to turn that into like a full-time career. And the only thing he could see was what was in front of him. And that was, you know, the corner, you know, and then later making trips back and forth to Raleigh, North Carolina to hustle. So by the time, fast forward a couple of years, by the time like 1992 is around, New York hip hop is still, is still very much big. It's still very much on the scene. You have a uh, young tribe called Quest out. Uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, De La Soul is out. You know, it acts like this. But now the West Coast is really, st- this is like one of the first times where we've seen like, oh, there's a concentration of 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 energy of energy that's outside of new york and that's out in california now so of course dre solo um ice cube is solo doing his thing this new record label called death row records is on the scene and like they they have this album that call, that's called the chronic which is basically hip-hop's version of songs in the key of life for stevie wonder in terms of how how impactful it was and that one album changed Big's entire outlook on hip hop. When The Chronic dropped in December 1992, Biggie was actually listening to that album a couple of months prior with Maddie C of The Source because Maddie would always get advanced copies of albums and they were they were just smoking in his apartment one day and like Big asked a blunt and he was like I got to go home. I got to I basically have to retool everything that I was doing because if rap is going to be sounding like that then I just can't, I can't just be a, a nice rapper. I can't just be nice and making words around. Hmm. So by the time, you know, he, he gets noticed by Puffy, he gets noticed, he's on, he's on Uptown and then Puffy is dropped from Uptown. Then they start uh, Bad Boy. And so now they're fueling up for the release. Um, I'm jumping over some stuff, but I'm trying to give you the yeah, definitely yeah. The, the most important points. Yeah. So by the time like the summer of 94 rolls around, uh, West Coast hip hop is in full swing. You, obviously, you had the Chronic. Then you then you double back a year later with Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, and then you have the Above the Rim soundtrack. And like Death Row is batting a thousand. West Coast hip hop is is all the rage. And New York is still important. Obviously, you had Wu Tang's Thirty Six Chambers that it came out. Nas's Illmatic came out in nineteen ninety four. Two groundbreaking, incredible hip hop albums, but they weren't like wide sweeping commercial successes you know what i mean like what what the chronic was what what doggy style was that's what that's what ready to die represented from the moment it was all a dream i used to read word up magazine and juicy came out it felt different like he biggie what what ready to die did was 
it reminded people like, oh man, like New York still may be in charge of this thing. You know, like this, this is an album that won commercial appeal and it won critical appeal. And I don't want to say Biggie blew up overnight because he didn't, but from the moment that album dropped, everything changed. There are dual tracks that you follow in this book. One is Biggie's life and the other is the world that made him, which is the title of the book. Why do you think it's so important to understand how New York City of the 70s and 80s and what was happening there at the time impacted young black men? Yeah, I think because it's wild because I'll start this off with the quote from uh, like Tupac Shakur. And he had a really good interview one time. He was like, I think for y'all to understand who I am, you have to understand what I've gone through and you have to understand what the world has given me. He was like, when you see kids on the corner with, you know, guns and they're selling drugs, it's like it's not just criminal black kids wanting to cause trouble. It's like, this is the environment that we were given. This is the world that raised us. And we're just trying to survive. And we're just trying to find success by any means necessary. And that's not always going to come with the job application. So when I'm working on this book, I'm looking at, all right, well, we know about the crack era. We know what that did. And we know why that's a significant point in American history. But to talk about that, you also have to talk about the economic crisis in New York in the 70s, which basically New York basically went bankrupt. And the mayor and governor of New York City had to go to the front door of the White House and basically all but beg President Gerald Ford to like, help us. Like, we're going broke. We have no credit. Like, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and we're barely doing that. And so eventually New New York gets bailed out. But that comes with consequences, that comes with repercussions, that comes with uh, programs being stripped away from after school programs in school, that comes with resources being stripped away from neighborhoods. And so now you take away all of this stuff, you take away all of these opportunities. The only thing in the neighborhood and a lot of these neighborhoods are the, the drugs. That, and that's a way that people know how to make money very quickly. And so while Biggie, while Christopher Wallace may be four and five when this economic crisis in New York is going on in the mid to late 70s, he's he's bearing the brunt of it in the mid to late 80s when the, we're really seeing the impacts of this. Whereas a generation earlier, he may have been shipped off to Vietnam. This generation, he was shipped off to a war, but it was right outside his doorstep and it was the war on drugs. As Ready to Die hits. And by the way, I was amazing to to see. It was amazing to see how fast it happened. I mean, this album come. I mean, I couldn't believe it. He's so, you know, so young. The the album comes out and the album is a success and he almost missed it. There was even a point where you described that there was this basically a a charge that he could have faced in North Carolina and a friend bailed him out. I mean, it was shocking to see how fast he literally went from selling drugs to being at least a national superstar, if not an international superstar. It's it's just proof that, you know, whatever, you know, religion you practice, whether you do or not, like we're all put here for a reason. We're all put here with the manifestation of something. And the, the, the incident, the, uh, the incident you speak of is when he was in Raleigh, North Carolina, he was still waiting for his, his, his contract with Puffy. And at that point uptown to come through because Puffy wanted to sign him. He had already freestyled for Puffy and Puffy was fell in love with the guy like off the rip. And a lot of people did. Yeah. and, And that was the thing about Biggie, like, when you look at his career, it was never him putting his music in front of somebody. It was always somebody else who believed in him so deeply that it was basically saying, hey, you got to hear this guy. And that's what happened. And that's how he got his music in front of Puffy. And But after he won Puffy over, there was a point in time where the paperwork was taking a long time to come in. And so he- As it always does. As it always does. As it always does. And he's he's basically telling people like, look, until Puffy gets me this money, until Puffy gets me this contract, I got to make money the way I know how. And so he's going back and forth to North Carolina and word got back to Puffy that he was in North Carolina and Puffy is pissed. He was like, I told you not to go back down there. I told you I was going to get the paperwork done. It's done. Come back here now. Sign the paperwork. You got one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars waiting on you. Boom, boom, bam. Biggie at that point in time was in his trap house in North Carolina in Raleigh. And something told him, he was like, you know what, I'm going to just leave today. 
I'm gonna leave today and then boom, literally the next morning, I believe, or a couple of hours later, after him leaving, the police raid that same house and everybody that's in the house ends up going to jail. So if Biggie would have been like, you know what, I'll just take the first bus in the morning back up to New York. Like, we don't we don't hear ready to die. We don't hear anything like the name Biggie Smalls just never mm-hmm. happened. Just never happens. And it's a totally different universe. Um, the first album makes him a star. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's going to be a, a second album. Um, you know, I don't know how to uh, I don't know how quite to present this to the listeners, but maybe let's tell it through the story of their relationship, uh, of his relationship with Tupac, because it's easy yeah. to look back and go, of course, they hated each other. One's East Coast, one's West Coast. I did not get a sense of how close they were and how much hanging out they did until I read your book and saw how they almost, you know, they did see it as like a, as a, as a, as a mutually beneficial relationship to be competing with one another. Yeah. And that was one of the big things, one of the big challenges I wanted to task myself with this book when I first started. Uh, of course, to tell the story of Biggie and Tupac, you have to talk about the falling out. You have to talk about the robbery. You have to talk about the beef. And of course, you have to talk about the tragic way and, excuse me, very similar ways that they lost their life or lives rather. But I feel like now when we talk about Biggie and Tupac in the scope of just history, it's always beef and negativity and, you know, I hate you and things of that nature. Whereas Yes, all of those things happen, but it's very unfair to strip them of their humanity. One, because their stories are so separate. And yes, I understand why they're intertwined, but they were their own persons. They were their own people. They were their own young black men to begin with. But in terms of them coming together, you can't just magnify the beef without talking about the brotherhood that came before it. And yes, like a lot of things, it was very brief, but it was very intense. It was very passionate and it was very pure when it was there. Like, I mean, I talk about it in the book, like Tupac and John Singleton are in Black College uh, Week in Atlanta promoting poetic justice. And the only song that Tupac is playing outside of his limo is Party and Bullshit by by Biggie, which is actually Biggie's really first single off the Who's the Man soundtrack in 1993. And, you know, one thing leads to another. Uh, Tupac finds out that Biggie and Bad Boy are in L.A. and he can't wait to meet he and Biggie link up and they go back to his house and they just freestyle for hours. They smoke weed and drink. Uh, you know, they play with like empty, like unloaded guns in the backyard. They're basically like they're two 20 something year old young black dudes, but they it looks like they're little kids playing cops and robbers in the backyard. And they, there was almost immediately there was this uh, mutual respect between the both. Like Biggie respected the fact that like Tupac had really came from like this freedom fighter heritage so like this this intense and this this intensity and this passion that he had for in his music for his people he respected that but he also respected the fact that he told the other side of the coin too about what life was like really in the streets whereas Tupac really respected that like Biggie actually was doing everything that he rapped about in terms of hustling in terms of just his lyricism uh because Tupac couldn't rap like Biggie and Biggie couldn't rap like Tupac so and there was they, they they had all these plans for each other in terms of just working on like multiple songs, mer- multiple projects. And whenever one was in the other city, they always looked out for each other. Tupac would give Biggie. I mean, Biggie would give Tupac guns for protection when he came to New York. They would always smoke out Fulton Street. They would come with like bags of like weed and they would just have fun. And they genuinely enjoyed each other's company and that's where that brotherhood stemmed from and i really wanted to paint what that looked like what it felt like and why that was so important to to both of their stories there are two sentences in the book that i'm going to put together as one or at least put in the same thought because they were so um thought provoking and i actually wrote them both down uh you never know when your world is going to change it just does that's the thing about time. We always want to believe we have more of it. Biggie yeah. is about to release an album, Life After Death. Um, so strange how aptly named it wound up being. Um, but I'll tell you yeah. another story. I had a college. I told you the college story, the college party story. Here's another one. Um, I was on my school bus about 13 years old, 1997. 
I was somewhere between Manhattan and the Bronx, and I heard someone say that Biggie Smalls had been killed, right? There was no Twitter back then. There was no other way to find anything out. I was on the school bus, and we all went, what? Um, And that honestly might be the first person who I can tell you where I was when I found out that they had died. Um, It was almost spooky that he was talking to us from this new album that was coming out in just a couple of weeks. And you say that he was on the verge of realizing he was getting somewhere. Yeah, man. Like, man, that that part of the book was so hard to write because one, you saw his life was changing. You saw the changes he was attempting to make in his life. But in writing the book and even reading the book, you know that he doesn't have a lot of time left, but he doesn't know he doesn't have a lot of time left. You know, so it's kind of like, when I look back on those last, not even just the last month, but the last like two or th- the last weekend of his life, because he was murdered on a Sunday morning. And so a lot of people may not realize that he wasn't even supposed to be in Los Angeles on March 9th, on March 8th, rather. He was supposed to be in London working on international promo for, for life after death. And his mother called him earlier that morning, asked why he wasn't on a plane to London. And, you know, his manager was pissed at him because he missed his flight. But, you know, he was honestly having a great time in Los Angeles. And of course, we know we know how the next several hours played out. We know how the story we know how his life ended, not necessarily his story. And I I just I think I, I, I wanted to try as best I could to paint what it felt like to be him when he got into the passenger seat of that GMC Suburban and he left that party that was by all accounts, like the best party that anybody had been to in years. It and did like sound people, good. I will tell yeah, you, it did like, sound like a good party. Yeah, Everybody was there like celebrities, you know, people from both, you know, bloods and crips were there. People just regular. Re- I couldn't regular. believe Shaq was supposed to be there. Shaq was supposed to be there. Shaq <laughs> overslept. Shaq, Shaq overslept twice. He was supposed to be there. Um, but yeah, I, I just think about like what was I wanted to paint what it felt like to be Biggie Smalls in the last hours of his life. And I guess if there's any redeeming quality of that is that he was legitimately happy. He was like he felt like, OK. You know, I went through a lot of drama these last couple of years and, you know, unfortunately, you know, Pac isn't here so we can really, really just, you know, basically squash all of that. But I feel like people they really want to hear my new album they play hypnotized like 30 times at the party and it went up every single time that they played it and just sitting in the back sitting in the passenger seat of that car to have d-rock mush him in the heads and yo you back baby you back like we about to blow up and then to have the song going back to cali playing while he has the last seconds of his life like that that's that's like the ultimate sense of like poetic injustice. You know, like you, you, you think your life is just going to be like, man, I'm about to drop this big double album. Like people are going to love it. It's going to, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to do this for this video. I'm going to do that for this video. I'm about to go on my first international tour. And like, you know, I got a newborn son back at home. My daughter's three years old. Well, no, two and a half at that point. And no, three years old, excuse me. And like, there's so much promise for me. And in the, blink of an eye man in the blink of an eye it's over and i'm gonna make a comparison that i'll defend to the hilt here um his death as i read about it his death reminded me of jfk there was a conspiracy the -hmm. body had to be taken on a flight back home across the country there was hatred for him in the city that he was killed in Mm -hmm. of course jfk was loathed by most people in dallas Grieving friends were with him who loved Mm -hmm. him so much. There have been, of course, many conspiracy theories about it. Um, They were complicated people. They were young. They were frozen in time. Yep. Right. We'll always see Biggie as as the guy on that album. Um, There was lack security. They probably should have been more careful in both cases. Mm -hmm. And they both found themselves. um, They both found themselves near the end of their lives, as you just described. And they both had remarkable funerals. Um, Describe the street corner 
and the street where Valletta Wallace, you know, came upon the funeral and saw and said, I had no yeah. idea how many people loved him. Man, you just saying that, I, I just get goosebumps. And honestly, I never actually thought of the JFK comparison. Oh, like I, that, I immediately. I was just like, this is like JFK. No, I mean, in terms. No, that that's I think that's accurate. Of course, you know, a lot of people are going to hear that. Like, How can you compare a rapper to the president of the United States? But when you talk about cultural significance, you talk about the like you said, the circumstances surrounding their individual deaths. Yes, I, I you know. But in terms of Biggie's Biggie's funeral, um, this was maybe around like nine or 10 days after he was murdered. And uh, they had a, a really had a really big service uh, in I believe it was in Manhattan. And because that's the size of the church that, that, you know, that could accommodate something of that of that nature. There were so many people there, so many dignitaries and obviously so many friends of his. But when they drove back, it, it, the procession went through Brooklyn. And it's ironic because uh, in the song that we just talked about, Shaq, but in the song that Shaq and Biggie did, Can't Stop the Rain, Biggie has a line on there that says, I rely on Bed-Stuy to put it down if I die. Basically saying, if I die, I, I, I expect Bed-Stuy to put on for me, to like make it a party. You know, like don't, don't mourn me, but just like turn up for me. And they did that. They did that. And that was very personal for for Brooklyn and in particular Best Eye Clinton Hill, where he really grew up and. Losing him. And even still, when you go back to New York these days, especially in Brooklyn, uh, obviously, Brooklyn is a lot different in 2022 than it was in 1997. That's for sure. <laughs> you, know, you know, for to say the very, very least, but. Regardless of what economic and systemic changes have gone on in Brooklyn, there's no way to erase his impact. There's no way to erase that. Like when you go to Brooklyn, like one of the first things you think about is, yo, this is where Biggie Smalls is from. This is where he grew up. You know, this is his domain. And so the day of that funeral, there were so many people on the streets, so many people hanging out of apartment buildings on on the, on, on rooftops and uh, Valletta Wallace is in the procession and she's still obviously, of course, mourning the death of her only child, but she sees all of these people on the streets and they're holding up Biggie, you know, shirts with her son on, on, on the front of it. And then out of nowhere, hypnotized starts playing and out of nowhere, this big party erupts and she sees people like who were once crying. Now they're partying. Now they're smiling. And it was that brief moment of reprieve that be like, yo, I'm in so much pain. But this music brings me so much joy. And like you said it uh, in your build up to the question, that's when she told herself from inside the, the limousine that she was in. She was like, I had no clue my son was this popular. I had no clue that people loved my son the way that I love my son. Now, granted, you know, obviously nothing can ever replace mother and son. But she was like, I had no clue that love was this pure. And she had no clue that he impacted as many people as he did and i think that was really the first time the magnitude of her son's talent the magnitude of her of her son's presence really hit home for it because she saw it like okay i'm grieving but this entire borough is grieving and if we can grieve together then maybe some at some point at some time we'll never get over it but as long as we have each other like we have each other. And I think that was important for her. I, uh, if anyone comes after me for that comparison, I have two things to say. One is that wasn't JFK quite a flawed individual too. And the second thing that gives me credibility on the Kennedy question is that my own daughter is named Kennedy. So I know a little bit about yeah. the guy and no. I just, yeah, I'm not saying no, you I, did. I but think that's yeah. a, it, it, it rang, it rang no, true I think, to me. I think that's, I, I never thought of it like that. I never um, thought of it like that. My grandmother actually said something about that because, you know, she's uh, she's listening to the audio book because, you know, she suffers from like glaucoma right now. So she really can't see, but she wants to support. And she was like, you know, I, I, I remember, you know, a bunch of people getting, you know, murdered throughout the course of my life. And then I remember where I was. And she was like, yeah, the way Brooklyn felt about you know, mm. Biggie dying. Like, I remember feeling about that about a couple of people. She was like about Martin Luther King, about uh, JFK. So 
like she didn't go as in depth and detail as you went about JFK, but like I think there's definitely parallels to it. Uh, I'm going to leave the question of who killed Biggie to your book. People can read it there. Uh, I wish yeah. we had more time to get through it, but uh, it, your description of it and your um, reasoning is is uh, is is um, very helpful to those of us who were still wondering where things stood with that. Um, yeah. So here's a question that I've wanted to ask for a long time. I didn't really have the right person to ask it to, I guess, but now <laughs> I do. Um when I listen to rap, which is pretty frequently, I mean, I don't go too deep on the tracks. I listen to mostly crossover type stuff, but, you know, sure. certainly lots of Biggie, lots of Jay-Z. That's what I grew up listening to. When I listen to rap, just to be honest, I have a hard time hearing the N-word. Um, I'm a white guy and I almost feel guilty um, for listening to songs with it in there because for me, the use of the word by a black man or a woman is a reminder that the word only belongs to black people. Um, and so I have a hard time even playing a song in public or at a party if it has that word in it, because I just, over the last 15, 20 years, I just feel different about it when I was a kid. Of course, I knew never to say it as a teenager, especially a yeah. white teenager. Um, how do I deal with that? Uh, uh, you know, how do we deal, you know, how do I deal with the N word being in songs that I just makes me feel this is, almost inappropriate for me to listen to it. Um, what's your reaction to those thoughts I'm having? I mean, I, I don't I don't think you should feel bad about listening to it. I mean, yeah, you hammered home the most important part. As long as you don't say it. You know, you're, <laughs> well, you're, of course, we all know. I mean, I hope we all know that. Um, yeah. Um, but, but you got to also understand, too, like this music is a product of, you know, the the environments that that, that it was manifested in. And at least I'll, I'll say this, the, the best examples of the art are, 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 are like that. And, and in these communities and in these settings, that word is used. And in a lot of cases it's used, it's not used as the, the toxic, well, it is toxic, but it's not used in, in ways that, you know, we were called that by non-African-American, sure. by non-Black people. So for us, like hearing it in the music, it's not really uh, as as triggering as it may be for somebody else, because it is a colloquialism. It is a term of endearment in some ways, in some ways. I'm not saying in all ways. So like for me, when I hear it, I don't really bat an eye because I understand the the, the environment that, you know, a lot of these, you know, sayings a lot, uh, uh, that this music was created in. It was created by largely, uh, you know, African-Americans and Black people. It was created under the pretenses of our experiences and things of that nature. So I don't think you need to feel any type of way about it. Uh, yeah. I think you just okay. understand it. And like when, when you talk to like, you know, your friends, whether, you know, you, you, when you talk to your friends who are white, you understand you had to tell them that like, you know, these are the experiences that they went through as artists or they went through as black men and black women in this country. So their history with that word is a lot more complex than it is for us. Because when we were calling them that, there was typically violence that was coming after that, that was inflicted upon them. So uh, it, 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 it's, it's a long answer. I'm just trying to give no, you no, the- No, no, it's a good answer. No, no, and I, and I appreciate it because, um, you know, as as we've become more culturally aware over the last, you know, really couple of years and you yeah. know, social justice campaigns. Um, and of course, I've always been aware of it. But, um, you know, it just things, you know, come to the forefront of your mind. And I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for your answer there, because um, sometimes it is hard for me to blast a song and know that that word is peppered throughout. Um, but I appreciate your answer on it. Um, yeah. When I see. Jay-Z, um, yeah. I guess he's in his 50s now, probably, or late 40s. Yeah, he is. Um, when I see Jay-Z, I think to myself, that's who Biggie might have been. Um, uh, I knew they knew each other a little bit. Um, but is that who yeah. we might have been looking at when we see Jay-Z as a billionaire and married to Beyonce? If Biggie had lived. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, that's probably the, the most apt comparison uh at the time of his death biggie was very much interested in business opportunities outside of just being in a recording booth outside of just being on tour granted he still loved that but like 
one a, a very fascinating interview he did was uh, probably in January 1997, and he was talking to Ego Trip magazine, and he was telling them, he's like, I don't want to be a 30-year-old rapper. He was like, if I hadn't gotten everything out of hip-hop by the time I'm 30, he said, then I'm doing something wrong. Now, had he had the gift of life, I definitely think he would have rapped well into his 30s and 40s because just the, the overall genre change and what was quote-unquote acceptable change. But... You know, he was he was very much interested in getting his own uh, clothing line started, which was Brooklyn Mint. He was interested in opening uh, his own restaurant. He was interested in starting uh, another clothing line with uh, Heavy D called uh, Big and Heavy, <laughs> aptly titled. So he he all he was good. a hustler. That's very good. Yeah, That's very good. yeah. So he was a hustler. Like he <laughs> he he wanted to diversify his portfolio as much as he could and. I think when you look at somebody like Jay-Z's career, who Jay-Z was one of Biggie's best friends from the time that they really met at the beginning of 1996 until uh, obviously the day that Biggie passed. And even, you know, hours before Biggie passed, uh, Jay-Z and yeah, Biggie were spoke phone, every right? day. Yeah, they were on the phone. Whether they they weren't in person, they were on the phone. They were hitting each other's beepers and things like that. Like Biggie saw so much of what he wanted, where he wanted to take his career and jay-z and when you see jay-z's career and how he's uh just reinvented himself far beyond just the rapper i I think i think we would have seen biggie do a lot of these different type of things some some of these business decisions may have not have made everybody happy at every point in time the same way with jay-z but uh they they were both they were both hustlers and they both love making money so i don't know if biggie would have been a billionaire maybe he would have maybe he wouldn't have Maybe he would have, or maybe he wouldn't have, rather. Uh, but I, I think that's a, you know, pun intended. I think Jay-Z is a good blueprint for what Biggie possibly could have become. Good pun. I like that. Uh, top five <laughs> uh, top five Biggie songs for you. Wow. Wow. You've asked a lot of really, really great questions so far, but this is by far the hardest question. <laughs> right. All right. All right. Top, top five songs uh sky's the limit that's my favorite biggie song sky's the limit is is definitely there um i have to say things done change from from ready to die uh the one more chance remix Mm -hmm. Uh, i downloaded that from because of your book i downloaded all the songs that i've missed throughout the years and i'm so glad to have them on my phone now (laughs) that's a good one oh man Two more. Yeah, that, that that's a, that's a classic. Okay, so two more. Damn. Ooh, two more, two more, two more. Um, I would have to say, um, my downfall from from life at the death. I, I love that song. Damn, now I got one more. I guess I would have to put Juicy in there. All right. Like yeah. it, 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 I, I can't do a top five songs and not have Juicy in there. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to do five. I would say Juicy is certainly there. Um, for me, when Victory comes on, oh yeah, and I just, yeah, I you can't not play it loud. It's just such a fabulous beat and song, and the lyrics are so much fun Dude. to listen to. Yeah, uh, like when I hear Victory, like, and obviously you know this because you read the book, but the fact that like Victory and All About the Benjamins were the last two verses that he recorded yeah. in his life, it was, it's just, it's awe-inspiring and it's, it's so tragic because like this dude was getting better. I don't know how that was possible, but he was getting better uh, as, as an MC. but yeah, I'm sorry. The song. No, no, that, um, tell us about CJ. CJ didn't remember him, but it was made clear in your book yeah. that he can see the reaction to his music. So how is CJ doing? And why do you think it's important that we recognize that his child lives on and is now an adult? I mean, for one, as of right now in 2022, CJ is, he's older than his father at the time of his father's death, which, you know, that, that right there is, that'll blow your mind. Yeah. That's that's uh, crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, like I said, I had formed a good uh, relationship uh, with CJ um, a couple of years prior. He read a story that I actually wrote on his dad about fatherhood and he shared it on his Instagram. And we just, you know, we struck up a conversation from there. And we've always kept in touch. So when I told him what I was doing, 
he was super excited because, you know, he obviously Faith Evans is his mother. So she would tell him stories about his about his dad, his his grandmother. Of course, Valletta would tell him stories about his dad. And of course, his dad, his dad still has a ton of friends who are here who would tell him stories. But, you know, I would tell him stories about my reporting and my research and it would kind of it would blow his mind in a sense because why he knows so much while you know he's always appreciated the fact that like when his dad's music comes on at parties where he's at he loves seeing the reaction he's still learning about who his dad actually was and like what were you know what were his insecurities like what were his strengths what were his weaknesses think what were, what was he trying to improve on so when i talk to him it's just more so he's giving me his perspective on what it's like being the son of this, you know, iconic MC and the son of this legendary R&B singer. But he's also telling me just his experience, just being his own man. And I know for both of his parents, Faith and uh, Big, that's what they wanted out of him. Like Big always wanted his kids to be their own individuals. He didn't, he didn't want it to be like, oh, you don't you're not just going to be the son of Biggie Smalls or the daughter of Biggie Smalls. You're going to be Tiana Wallace, you know, entrepreneur doing whatever you want to do. You're going to be CJ Wallace, entrepreneur doing whatever it is that you want to do. And they're both doing that. And in a way, they're living out their father's legacy by being their own individual person. And with CJ in particular, who I who I have a better uh, relationship with at this point, mainly because we just talk. I, I've, I've talked to him. I haven't necessarily talked to Tiana. Uh, although she's doing great it's crazy to believe she has a child which means biggie would be a grandfather right now which still blows shit yeah blows that's my crazy mind. Um, um yeah uh it would be interesting to hear him rap about his grandchildren wouldn't it yeah um, yeah it would be what other music stars need a book like this Ooh man there's 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 so 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 many uh are we talking just music in general are we talking hip-hop i it's an open-ended question just, you can you can go anywhere you want with it um, yeah, so I think uh Stevie Wonder. Hmm. You know, I think he definitely deserves one. Um, think of who else? Uh I mean, I can't leave, man. There, there's just it's just so many. Uh I think Mac Dre from the Bay deserves one. Uh he, he's definitely a hip hop legend. Uh how about Eminem? oh yeah i mean it i think people who are still alive and they're these like un you know you, you can't deny that eminem isn't a hip-hop megastar legend like yeah while these people are still here you definitely need to get them on the record and speak of it mm -hmm. because you know unfortunately i wasn't able to speak the big for this book and so while these people are still here we have to get them on the record telling their story and so like there's there's so many different i think i think missy elliott deserves her own book because i think she just shaped just how music sounded and just her own prowess and songwriting was incredible i think usher could get his own book you know what i mean like there's I'm, look man there, there's so many different people who i could name and I, I could name a billion people and still leave off two billion <laughs> uh what's next for you am i allowed to ask that what you're working on now uh yeah so i'm just working on some different projects with uh anscape um, hopefully they'll be out later this fall in terms of like big projects that I'm working on. I am thinking about what I want to do for uh, my next book. I have no clue what it's going to be about. I have no clue what it's uh, when the, when it'll be done. I definitely have no clue when it'll be done because I haven't even started <laughs> writing yet. I don't even know what it is. You don't know what's going to uh, start. But yeah, um, yeah. It just it'll hit me. What um, what question? Let's wrap it up here. What question would you ask Biggie if you had one shot to ask him a question and get a straight answer on? Um, okay, so if Biggie was 50 years old right now, um, looking back on your life, what would the 50 year old Biggie tell the 23, 24 year old Biggie to make right in his life? And like, what, how, how what would you, yeah, so that question right there, and what makes you happiest about your own personal growth over the last quarter century? Like, how, how are you happy that you've evolved as a man? I forget as an artist, like we hear that, 
but like you know so that i, I would ask more personal questions like that i i got one more actually it just occurred to me excluding the unfortunate um excluding the way he died what moment of his life do you wish there was surveillance video of so you could see what it was like oh oh hands down i wish it would have been uh when he and Tupac were freestyling at Tupac's house for like an hour, I, I wish cell phone cameras were around for just that very moment <laughs> right there, just to right. see Tupac and Biggie just going at it. Like that would have been awesome. Justin Tinsley, the author of It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Check out the book. Check out his Twitter feed, which is at Justin Tinsley. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.